The following is a Barrett Sports Media production. Every sports media star has a story. From the highs... We are number one. We just grabbed every key demographic. <laughs> to the lows... You're fired! The path to success is always different. To help you learn more about the industry's top broadcasters, Barrett Sports Media brings you the Sports Talkers Podcast. Now, here's your host... Stephen Strom. Hello and welcome. Sports Talkers Podcast. I'm Stephen Strom. Hope everyone enjoyed their Labor Day weekend. Had a nice trip home to the Jersey Shore, but we're back in Miami gearing up for the NBA season. Wanted to hit you with three things before we get into today's guests. First thing, BSM Summit. The show is moving to Los Angeles in March. It's going to be at the Founders Club at the Gallon Center at USC, so wanted to give you guys a heads up on that. Number two, Rate, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We're starting to consistently be in the top 200 most listened to podcasts in the United States in the category of sports news. So the more you rate, the more our show is likely to be found on people that are searching podcasts. So that is much appreciated. And then number three, the most important thing, our guest, Jason Fitz, the host of Spain and Fitz on ESPN. Just a wild story. Jason was originally a musician, a fiddle player. Uh, grew up practicing like 100 hours a week, ended up with the country band Perry. They won a Grammy. In his interview, the Grammy's behind him. It was kind of intimidating, uh, but he decided it was time to put away the fiddle and jump into sports radio. So we get the story behind that, and this is just a prime example of everyone's journey being uniquely different. So without further ado, let's get to Jason Fitz. I never do interviews in hoodies. You inspire me to do that. You're the calm look. I get let me first start there because you are kind of different in the sense that you didn't come on, you weren't wearing the blazer. Was that like a non-negotiable? Were you just like this is just who I am? Kind of walk us through your style. That like that's a great question, by the way. And um that's been a real journey. Cause like that first show when they hired me on ESPNU at the time they always looked at it like you could do different things, right? We could just try things to see uh, what everybody liked. And so they told me, hey, you got to wear a tie, you know, but you can roll your sleeves up because uh, from all the years of being a fiddle player in music, I hate having sleeves down. It, like when, you, when you're holding a violin, it just feels constricting. So my whole life, I've always rolled my sleeves up. Then I got sleeve tattoos, right? So like now I'm really comfortable that way. But it was funny, the blowback on Twitter initially all the way back then was how disrespectful it was that somebody at ESPN was, you know, had all these tattoos showing and, you know, Mike would wear a coat. He he covered his. And right. so at the time it was sort of trailblazing. The first time I ever did first take, they told me, hey, you got to you got to keep your sleeves down. And it was like a third of July, fourth of July show. And we were about to eat hot dogs. And I took the jacket off that I had to wear at the time of the producer in my ear. I remember it was like, I, I, you got to put the jacket back on, man. Like, and now it's changed so much that it's very accepted. And our goal with digital shows is to feel like you walked in to like a sports bar and you're having a exactly. conversation with two best exactly. friends. And like, that's what, when Michael Luke Jr. and I really started, we did the first ever digital show rankings reaction on his couch. I was wearing an inflatable a Halloween costume because it was Halloween weekend like that. We started from the get go saying, let's do this in a really casual way. So it's important to me to be myself. So like when I, even when I host college football live, I, I wear a tie for that. It's on TV. Yeah. So my sleeves are always rolled up like I am who I am. And my tattoos are part of my identity. 
Like that's just part of what I think makes me different than Max or anybody else, you know, or Greeny that's on air. Like Nagandi's not going to be walking around with tattoo showing. And as much as we're friends, that's what makes us very different personalities. And it's not just the style that makes you different. And and I, I you have went over this story a billion times, but for the people that may not know, in the band Perry, but you make this transition into sports broadcasting, sports, whatever you want to call it. What was the pivot? When was the pivot and why was the pivot? So, uh, yeah, I, I was really lucky to have a music career I'm proud of. I got a Van Perry record behind me. I've played on 40 million units sold as a violinist and as a fiddle player. Same instrument, by the way. It's just Same a different instrument. approach. Music was always part of my life. I think what happened for me in around 2012, 2013, before podcasts were a huge thing, um, our busiest year, we were on the road 300 days. And I came home at the time after 300 days gone. And I told my family, I was like, man, I'm lucky to do what I do. And I'm honored to do what I do. And like everything I ever did, I did because I wanted to make impact. And now I'm getting to do that. I'm playing in front of millions of people all over the world, but I don't love it. Like mm. done it my whole life, but I don't love it. And so uh, somebody asked me the question, if I asked a hundred of people what you really love, what would the answer be? And I said, sports. And so jokingly, they were like, well, go talk about sports. So I grabbed one of my mics that I used to record strings. And I sat in my car because I felt like such an idiot. I didn't want anyone to hear me. And I did like a 10 minute recording that I put on Facebook for my friends and was like, Hey, I'm going to talk about sports for 10 minutes. And I got like a hundred comments from everybody. It's like, God, this is just like sitting on a tour bus with you. All you ever do is talk about sports. I listened for a month to everything I could that I ever loved. But instead of just listening, I, I took notes. Like, what do they do? How do they do it? I figured out that the opening segment on radio is 12 minutes because Dan Patrick and Colin Cowherd were doing 12 minute segments. Like nobody taught me that you just sit there. You're like, Oh, there's a, there's a, a, a note. So I eventually built a template in Pro Tools and because I'm familiar with that from the music side. And I built my own theme music that bumped in to tell me when to stop my monologue. And then I, I decided I wanted to have like funny skits to make people laugh along the way. I wanted to try and get guests. And I built a podcast where how could I get music guys to talk about sports and sports guys to talk about music? And I did that from the ground up with no What help year is this? 2013, 2014, right now. How old are you at this point? Uh, well, I'm 45 now, so I'm in my mid thirties. Uh, you know, so yeah, I'm late in life to make a, a, a life change. Um, never picked up a microphone as far as sports broadcasting before this. Not at all. No, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I looked at every week at his podcast, like as my demo reel, like the one thing I tell him. And the first time I ever talked to ESPN, they were like, well, you know, what, what if you burn out at this, the way you burned out of music? And I was like, well, look, I, Played the violin for roughly 40 years of my life. So if I give you 40 strong years at ESPN, you'll be kicking me out the door. <laughs> but like for me, I looked at it every single no, every um, every ah, and I, I took notes. I'm like, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. And I just I did it, I treated it the way I treated my music. Like perfection was everything. So how do I get really comfortable with finding my identity? And I carved it apart. And I just started when we were on tour in different cities. I would, if there was somebody I really liked in that city that was a writer, I'd reach out to him and be like, can I pick your brain? I just want to learn about business. And like, um, I was very fortunate when the podcast podcast had locked in. I was doing okay. Not a lot of listeners, but I was, I, I never had a lot of listeners. That's the one thing, like my biggest failure was my podcast and my podcast got me to where I am. So like, I just looked at every week as, can I get somebody to give a damn? And I was lucky. Um, there was a, a musician that reached out to me once on Twitter and said, Hey, I want to learn how to make it in the business. And I've always been very open about like it takes a village. So I tried to help him. And then I got a DM from his cousin not long after that, who happened at the time to work at ESPN. And so he was like, hey, I work at ESPN. I'll listen to your podcast if you want as a thank you for helping my cousin out. So I was like, yeah, give me notes. He gave me three pages typed of notes on a podcast of everything I was doing wrong. 
And so I ripped it apart. And a week later, I sent him a note and I said, hey, listen to this week's podcast. Tell me what you think. He called me after. He's like, I've never had anybody take every note I've ever given them. Was, so, was ESPN a pipe dream? Like, did, when did that, was that a pipe dream or or when? Well, that wasn't just pipe. Like the minute I started, I remember I got a buddy. His name's Rob Baker. And Rob managed Brett Eldridge for a long time, a country music artist. He broke Brett Eldridge's career. And um, Rob was my entertainment attorney when I was a just a fiddle player. I've been in bands before I was with the band Perry. I tried to get a solo deal. I couldn't get signed, but Rob was my, my rep. Mm. And I sat down with Rob at a place called frothy monkey in Nashville. I said, Rob, I want to do sports talk radio. And like, he was one of the first people I told. And I was like, I know this sounds stupid. And he laughed and he's like, no, it doesn't. He said, once you've been successful at anything, people will give you the benefit of the doubt at the next thing you do, you know, from the outset, I was like, I'm going to get to ESPN. That was always the goal. And, you know, this buddy that uh, eventually, you know, started, fighting on my behalf every time we would play on the northeast in the northeast i would fly out by myself like three days early i'd rent a car i'd get a hotel room right by espn and i would accidentally be on campus so that we could just happen to get coffee and like mm. i just i worked it like i just wanted people people to them about my work and that's why i always tell kids when they ask me like how do i make it in sports media uh, my answer is always the same thing have a defined goal of what you want be true to who you are so that you know authentically how to answer the question of who are you and make content today. Like, don't don't wait for someone else to make content for you. And don't worry about like, I never wanted to be Clay Travis. I never wanted to own my own podcast, sell my own sure. site. Like, I'm not good at that. I wanted to be on the worldwide leader where I could show up. Hands somebody hands me a thing and says you're hosting on this today, and I could say, Yep, I will do all the homework. I will be great at it. I will kick ass at that. All right. So when you get to ESPN, what were some of the things that when you immediately got on, you were like, Oh my God, this is not as easy as I thought it was. I was very lucky and I didn't do a screen test. I didn't do a big audition thing. They took a chance on me based on my podcast and based on me meeting with people. So I flew in to Charlotte where ESPNU is. And day one of the show, I show up for my first rundown meeting. We're in this big conference room. Everybody starts talking about, well, I'm this person and I've worked on these shows. They got to me and I'm like, hey, I'm Jason Fitz and I have no idea why I'm in this room. <laughs> so like I go out, I am set at the table. And a producer hands me the rundown. He's like, here's a rundown. It's like, cool. What's a rundown? I've never seen one at all in my life. So he was like, oh, you know what? I forgot you've never done TV before. So he got my ears like we were these little molds, you know, sure. and he walked me through the entire show. The great strength that I had is if you've ever watched, this is a, a behind the scenes secret of music. If you ever watch your, your favorite band, they're all wearing these same things. Most of the time, there's a guy on stage that used to be me that was a band leader. He has a foot switch. He can step on the foot switch. It mutes the music for everybody, and he could talk to the whole band. So in the middle of a song, I could step on a foot switch and be like, hey, Kimberly wants to skip the next song. We're going to go to this Not If You Got Me. So if you're ever watching your favorite band and they're all nodding like this, they're actually telling somebody else, I got your communication. So I'm used to somebody talking while I talk. It has been my whole life. What I didn't anticipate was tone change and like i think our third or fourth episode in there was a stabbing on campus at ohio state and in the middle of an episode they were like we are going to wheel out a prompter you need to to calm down and you need to read this and that's live on tv and like you think you've got that until you're asked to do that like sure. it is a very like hey in a ser on a serious note we now have to cover this i have to read this professionally looking straight on at the screen i'm reading it cold i don't get two shots at this like this is live so that stuff is is surprised. It surprised me a lot when I got into the business. So what's kept you out of ESPN? I freaking love it. Um, as a kid, I remember running to watch NFL primetime because it was the way you got 
like your connection. You know, as an adult, I was part of country music radio. And the most powerful thing about country music is that like fans and artists have real relationships. Fans will come see you 80 times a year if you give a damn about them. Like if you invest in fans, they invest in you. At ESPN, it's one of the few places in the world where I get a daily radio platform. I'm on SportsCenter on Snapchat that hits 1.5 million kids between the ages of 13 and 24. I host a digital show. I host, what, six digital shows that all average about a million viewers a week that are a totally different audience than the TV shows that I get to be Mm. a part of. Like, if you really want to make impact, I believe in the world of our, you know, our, our mission statement, serve sports fans anytime, anywhere. I don't believe anymore you can sit in like you're a restaurant everybody comes to. You got to be a food truck. And ESPN lets me be a food truck that goes to this neighborhood with one type of food, this neighborhood with another. And I can be authentic to myself through all of it and hit grandparents and grandkids at the same time. Like I may not have, you know, I don't have the audience that Stephen A has and I don't have the following that L. Duncan has, but I get to hit that same audience every single day. That's powerful to me. Sometimes when I think, and and everyone does this before they get into broadcast. You're a fan first. That that's what draws us to this. And sometimes we don't understand the impact or influence of our words at an ESPN, at a local station, whatever. Has there been an instance where you may have said something where a player or a coach may have come at you at at media day? Did you get a tweet? Did you get an email? Give us a funny story. You were like, oh crap. Okay, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Okay, so I did learn a, a valuable lesson on that ESPNU show. There's a rather, like, I think anybody at this point could go out and Google Jason Fitz Clemson. Um, I had it out with Clemson fans. Now, in fairness, uh, that year, um, we did segments where we held up these emojis, right? Like, just random emojis for different things. And uh, we had talked a lot about Lamar Jackson that year. He was huge. So Clemson fans already thought that our whole show was biased against Clemson because they were pro-Lamar Jackson. You know how college football fans get. Yes. And there had been a week where... Um, they had all had Krispy Kreme donuts to celebrate a win over Wake Forest for because Krispy Kreme is located there. But I held the poop emoji up for that on the on the stance solely that I prefer Dunkin' Donuts to Krispy Kreme all day. Uh, yep. That that was my whole take. Clemson fans took it personally. They got my menchies. Some really violent things were said towards me, towards my wife. It got like there was a whole I hope your whole family gets murdered and raped thing. Like it was it got it got heated. I, on the last show of the year for my parting shot, I I let loose. And I said, look, I came into this season not rooting for or against any college football team. I don't have a favorite or least favorite. But thanks to the behavior of Clemson fans this, this year, I now root against Clemson. You guys are trash. And, you know, start holding yourself accountable the same way you hold your players mm-hmm. accountable. It went viral. I did not know. I turned my phone off because I was flying. We weren't a huge show. I opened my phone to thousands of tweets, emails from ESPN, the whole PR conversation. Like I had to talk about whether or not I was going to issue an apology. I learned a valuable lesson. What I should have said there is some of your fans on social media act like trash. You generalized. Yeah. I I generalized an entire fan base. I learned a valuable lesson from that though. Like I, you know, I, I, I definitely learned from that and Clemson fans still, every time they win, they troll me, which is, which is fine. Like I, I stand behind why I said what I said. I could have said what I said differently. So that's one viral example. Um, Another important, you know, just like a lot of times players won't say anything to you, but I do know this. I wasn't always the nicest to Taylor Lewan when I was on local and Taylor and I have been very good friends. And there are times when all of a sudden I am like, we're buddies, like we're hanging out. We're like at the man, I hope everything's good for you and your family level all the time. 
But if I say something Lawan doesn't like, like if he hears this and decides he doesn't like it, I will be blocked. My phone will be blocked. I will not hear from Taylor for six months. So <laughs> I always know when I've taken it as like, that's why I, I constantly joke on the radio when I talk about the Raiders. I'm like, everything's positive about Derek Carr. Do not block me. You are the quarterback of my favorite football team. So, for sure. <laughs> awesome stuff here with Jason Fitz. Let's end here with uh, one of your partners, Sarah Spain. Um, I guess just what, how did working with Sarah help you build your confidence and to let you know that you belonged in an ESPN platform? I think a couple of things. I won't necessarily credit Sarah for the, the there's one part of it that comes with daily radio and that's reps. And, and I believe that the most important thing everybody needs, anybody that's watching this that wants to get into media, you have got to get reps, right? So working with any radio show was going to give me reps and make me better. I don't necessarily think that's on Sarah. The part that is definitely on Sarah is I came in to Spain and Fitz with a real mindset of sports entertainment. Sports talk is entertainment. And I came in wanting to do, you know, the, the music equivalent of all upbeat. Like you, you've seen me enough to know, like my energy is always at a thousand, right? Yes. So that's because I look at it like, man, most of the people tuning in have already had a really bad week. They just want to celebrate sports. They want they want levity. They want to laugh. They want they want to Extinct. find this sort of entertainment value out of it. So I want to do a concert full of up tempos. Sarah was the one that taught me if that's all you do, that's all you'll ever be seen as, and you won't get the same level of reality and, and respect from people. So working with Sarah right away, it became important. I and we all know this. Like Sarah is a journalist. I'm not. Sarah covers incredibly difficult issues the right way. I had no idea how to do that. Mm. So the important thing with Sarah was like just watching and listening and learning to how to get that that right tone and the right understanding, how to how to know when a topic that may not be a, a first take topic is still an important topic for us on radio. Right. Like how to understand that something a little off the radar still needs to be told. And, you know, she said something that, that really changed my life. Uh, when it comes to the WNBA, if you look at the WNBA numbers, they've uh, gone up incredibly every year. Now, there are people that want to trash the WNBA because that's what they like. Uh, they, they, there's like a negative culture, but you, the, the numbers are undeniable on it. And one point Sarah's made is we as a broadcast partner have the opportunity to tell great stories. And the better stories we tell, the more people pay attention to the sports we talk about. And I take that responsibility seriously. Like I, I think the number one thing that I've learned from Sarah, that no matter where the rest of my career or her career goes, I will always keep with me is like, we have an obligation to not be dismissive of sports and instead to look for the great stories on sports that deserve that great storytelling. And most of them do like, so for somebody that covers college football all the time, working with Sarah changed my concept on name image likeness, because a lot of people want to make it a football conversation without ever acknowledging Olympic sports, non revenue generating sports, title nine, that there are other elements to it. If you're a swimmer and diver that never has the opportunity to monetize as a professional, do you not deserve to have a portion of the NIL conversation? I would not have had the, you know, foresight to be able to step back and say, how does this impact everybody else? Were it not for working with Sarah. She's made me so much smarter at seeing not just what we're talking about, but the collateral damage of all of it, because she is so brilliant with understanding if this, then that, that it has really made me better as my job. Can I give uh, Jason Baird a, a shout out for something, by the way? You know what? Uh, he texted me and he said, ask him about the advice I gave him. Are you serious? That? And yeah, I go, because... oh, okay, I'll, I'll squeeze that in. What do he tell you? 
that the first day I ever did local radio, uh, we were on a remote, which is the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life. Like it's my first day and we're on a remote. And it was for a big radio thing that was going on. And Jason Barrett walked by and he came up to me. Didn't I didn't know him. He, I didn't think he knew me. And he said, hey, man, congratulations on the gig. This is a big deal. He said, let me give you one piece of advice. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm t- take it to me. And he said, your job is not to talk about what you want to talk about, but what the majority of people that are listening to you want to hear about. And he's like, always remember to serve your audience. That has never lost me. Like the number of times you sit there and say, I may come in today. And today on Spain and Fitz is a great example. I wasn't on radio today. So it's super easy for me to come in and say, let's spend an hour. Like, let's spend an hour talking about Georgia football because I got an hour's worth of stuff. But the broadest set of our audience cares a lot more about the fact that the NFL season's about to start than they do about the fact that Georgia won days ago. So, like, understanding every day that my job is to talk about what the audience of Spain, who you got to ask yourself, and this is important because, like, one day I was on radio when Alex Smith was traded. We blew up the whole show and we did everything that night on radio about Alex Smith. I walked two buildings over to Snapchat. And I said, I got all these, uh, all this information on Alex Smith. And our producer said, our audience doesn't care. And we led that night with Alonzo Ball preseason headlight, headline uh, highlight. So I came in the next day and I said, let me see the clicks. Cause on sports, on Snapchat, you can see exactly what people click through. He was hundred percent right. The minute we got to the NFL, they clicked through. And what I learned from that is that the biggest story is different depending on what show you're hosting. The broadest set of the audience is different depending on what time slot you're in. Like you have to ask yourself whatever medium you're on every single day, who's listening to this? How can I give them my personality and my thoughts on what they care about? And that's a huge important part of what we do. Jason Baird taught me that. So in one meeting, he taught me something that has changed my ability to do my job. All right, big thanks to Jason Fitz for joining me today. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and review the Sports Talkers podcast. We'll talk to you next Thursday here on BarrettSportsMedia.com.